Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Go-Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Go-Go's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. We are still broadcasting, believe it or not. I'm Dr. Shane. It is uh, Sunday morning, and we're going to give you an hour of science. We promise to not talk about coronavirus at all, with the exception of the first 15 minutes or so. I think that will do it. In the studio with me is Dr. Ray. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You well? I am well, thank you. Yeah, good. Just making sure you don't cough at me. I'm yeah, fine. He's good. And Stacy, welcome back. Thanks, Dr. Shane. Good, good morning. How good are to you? see you. All the way from Cotton. Oh, yeah. Downtown Cotton. Yeah. What's happening down there? People going crazy? Mm, no, they're cautious. Very are, you, cautious. are you guys, because I hear people from the city are rocking up into these country towns and stealing all the groceries. Is that true in mm, Cotton as well? I, I heard that. I heard that. There's uh, some um, uh, country shopping going on. I think everyone just needs to uh, calm, calm down and uh, stop the hoarding. Yes, stop the hoarding. Now, we're going to do a little bit of science uh, with you, Ray, before we, are. we go into some of the corona stuff with Stacey, because you work for the state government part of your time, and you're doing a PhD for the other part. True, true. So yeah. we'll, we'll get into some details. Dr. So Ray? it's just a, a minute and a half about drones. So um, university researchers at the University of Zurich, who happen to be a world-leading group in autonomous drones, have shown how drones can effectively play dodgeball. Uh, so these are drones that can navigate on their own. And uh, the challenge is, if you throw a ball at a drone, because I don't know why you would, but just as a simulation for getting out of the way of fast-moving objects, yeah. drones really, with they, their automatic cameras, can't respond fast enough. And so their response time is 20 to 40 milliseconds, which is even slower than Dr. Shane or I after we wake up in the mornings, and, you know, because we're, you know, of a certain age. Um, but, but, uh, and, and so the, the reaction times are quite small, uh, slow, and that's because of how it sees. It uses a standard camera that you would take an image and then it downloads the image from the camera and then processes it. And it takes 20 to 40 milliseconds. So what they did was, is they actually used, uh, what's called an event camera, which are bio-inspired cameras that see very differently. They have effectively what are called smart pixels. And so from image to image, if there's no motion on that pixel, it doesn't update. It only updates the parts that have motion to it. And so the image that comes out doesn't look like the one you and I would see. It would look like anything that was moving might show up on their edges, but it, it really is much less information to process, so it can do it much faster. And so instead of 20 to 40 milliseconds, which is you know pretty fast, I mean, you can stop and start a stopwatch faster hmm. than that. Hmm. Um, you, uh, it's only was, was just a few milliseconds. And so this was fast enough that, you know, they have great videos indoor and outdoor people throwing dodge balls at these drones and them responding. And this is one of the really big steps that they're trying to make to make sure that you can make drones nearly as reliable as human pilots. And part of that is that reaction time in dealing with motion. Hmm. So, uh, Smart pixels and event cameras. Interesting. I just realized that the start-stop uh, stopwatch thing is a way to work out what uh, generation people came from. Sorry, that's how quickly you can tap start and stop on yeah. the iPhone. How is that? People still do that? I thought it was just something we did on stopwatches because we were bored. But, I, uh, I, I think we'll have some boredom in our future. Yeah. Try it, people. It's a lot of fun. You get, but, that, uh, you get that but lucky shot. And if, if you do look up drones in University of Zurich on Google, they have some, some fantastic movies showing both the drones <laughs> getting out of the way and what an event camera looks like. Uh, yeah. It's really cool. Yeah, that's cool stuff. Now, Stacy, it's all happening. Uh, people, I think, are getting all sorts of information from a variety of sources. 
What's your take on what's going on at the moment with corona? Sure. So I think I, I thought I'd preface this conversation with the fact that listeners uh, and everyone out in the Australian community need to source their information from verified sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this morning, this is what I did. I log on to health.gov.au forward slash news and get the latest information, uh, evidence-based information uh, around coronavirus. Okay. Uh, and importantly, on, um, on that website, uh, there's a number of uh, statements by AHPPC. This is the Australian Health Protection Principal Committee, and this is a committee of experts Uh, infectious disease experts, public health practitioners that are advising the government on the best evidence-based strategies uh, to put in place for coronavirus. Hmm. Okay. So what was the website again? Uh, So it's health.gov.au forward slash news. uh, And then you can, or if you just search um, Australia coronavirus, uh, Mm. Australian Health uh, government okay. department the coronavirus you'll you'll find it but uh, I think there's you know there's it's great that there's a lot of discourse out there yep. um, in uh, in popular press uh, and social media but I, I think uh, it's important for people to get their information from verified mm. sources so it's interesting to me I was thinking about this over over the last few days and just just switching to climate change for a moment mm. one of the ways in which climate deniers try and make their case is to tell people that all scientists are not in agreement which we know is inherently, uh, with the exception of the few scientists who get money from oil companies and so forth, is bullshit. Um, But in this case, it's absolutely true. Um, You have epidemiologists, some saying closed schools, some saying not. You have some people being extremely, you know, concerned and other people being seemingly somewhat laid back or maybe just a bit more pragmatic. Mm -hmm. And so when the public's hearing this, you know, we are in that state that is being used by climate deniers to actually make their case. But it's it's really happening in this case where if I'm just, you know, member of the public and I'm looking at who I should believe, everyone's putting themselves out there as an expert at the moment. Absolutely. So, I mean, how do you, how do you, you know, cut through that? Because in a way, the scientific community and the medical community is eating itself alive here and the public is just sitting there going what the hell do I do? Because you're not being clear. Mm. Now, there's the government expert committee, which I get, there's that piece, mm. but there's a, a sea of other information. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I think, um, again, if people can just uh, consider the evidence-based guidelines that governments are putting out um, mm. will be your best place, um, best bet. But also, um, you know, there's some really fantastic um, infectious diseases epidemiologists on, on on Twitter and 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 being interviewed uh, by the popular press. Um, they're usually trying to draw on on experts in the field that do yep. know what they're talking about. Uh, there's a few rogues out there, but um, mm. but I think uh, people just need to be mindful that um, uh, that that what we're trying to do in Australia and and globally is draw on the, um, uh, the best uh, evidence um, uh, that's available. And uh, there's people. Since synthesising that evidence and being able to uh, communicate that to the public in a clear and concise manner. And so uh, it's certainly not a, a government conspiracy. You need to, um, mm. We need to follow the, uh, that guideline. And I think that, um, uh, that that is the best way that we're going to be able to pull down this epidemic, flatten the curve that everyone keeps talking about, um, because really the current objectives of these measures that uh, governments around the world are putting in place is to slow the progression of the outbreak, um, to limit the burden on health services and, and flatten that epidemic curve. So we do that through a range of of measures and people are talking about um, uh, public health mitigation strategies uh, and so these are things like active case management and contact yep. tracing so uh, when people say we need to uh, quickly uh, diagnose patients and put them in isolation that is good you want to remove those uh, yep. infectious people yep. from the population those border measures and the social distancing measures that are implemented are um, are really key to pulling down um, that that epidemic curve 
Um, so yeah, there, I mean, there's some some fantastic work uh, being published by uh, Imperial College London, for example, that are doing mathematical modelling to try to understand what are those different strategies that might be able to um, mitigate this outbreak and minimise the spread. Uh, and what they've been uh, published earlier this week is that uh, modelling uh, these uh, scenarios in the UK population and the US population is that there's a range of strategies that you can put in place, uh, which. Uh, uh, optimally what they find is that a combination of all of those strategies including including quite large scale social distancing including targeted distancing for those at risk are the most mm. effective yeah yeah um I mean, ideally, uh, in an ideal world, there's some uh, countries that have been implementing large-scale suppression activities. But the challenges with those suppression activities is that you've got to implement them for a very long period of time. Yeah. So this is the type of um, type of strategies that governments are putting into place and considering on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, and the policies will change over time. Yeah. I can imagine, uh, you know, culturally, there is some aspects of this that in some countries, some things will work, and in other countries, they just will not work. I mean, having travelled to Singapore myself, in, not in the last 14 days, but in, in the last year, um, seeing culturally there is quite a lot of differences there in terms of just what the government can do relative to what it can do in Australia. Yeah. So many of those procedures that they have in place probably wouldn't, you know, well, they'd be seen as very extreme here, even though you have a whole group of people in, in our society at the moment seem to be calling for that. Mm. Um, but if they actually got it, yeah. You wonder how they would react. Yeah. Well, and Singapore's been really interesting, actually, because what they've done is isolated all of their confirmed cases in hospital. Mm. Um, and uh, and they ha they've managed to uh, control the outbreak to some extent without uh, school closures. Yep. Um, and people are, um, are very compliant in, in Singapore and following advice, and that seems to be working. Uh, so, yeah, there's a range of strategies that have been in place uh, in places like Singapore that have done quite well and other places that haven't done so well. And I think uh, what... What we don't know with this is that when those mitigation strategies or those lockdown or suppression strategies are released, will we start seeing uh, a rebound in the epidemic? So uh, we're just unclear at the moment about, uh, for example, what will happen in China when they start lifting those um, those suppression strategies and mm. whether the epidemic will rebound. So we're sort of in a in a um, <laughs> A, a very difficult position at the moment because uh, we don't have it's a new virus so we don't have the evidence and what we need to do is draw on uh, experts such as those that are uh, adept at mathematical modeling to try to give us some sort of understanding of what we might be facing and it might be something uh, like we're seeing in, in in Singapore and others where we can relatively contain it or it might be on, on the other side and what we're seeing mm. in Italy is quite catastrophic yeah. Yeah. so uh, so I, I think these measures are being considered uh, every day and uh, we do need to follow that advice. To At the moment, our mitigation strategies are um, targeted social distancing for people over the age of 70, yep. which is very sensible, um, minimising mass gatherings uh, to less than 500 people yeah. and in an enclosed space, less than 100 people, and then all those individual strategies that we've been talking about, which is ta individually taking a distance of 1.5 metres from each other, uh, so these are the strategies that, that, that we need to practice today. It's a bit difficult in the studio, actually. actually. I'm sitting yeah. up a measure. I think we're just... I reckon we're all right, Dr. You know, I mean... Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I always get a little uncomfortable when I'm close to Dr. Shane anyway, but mm -hmm. I think we're okay. Yeah, yeah, no, I think we're doing a good job here in Triple R. It, it's interesting to me, uh, one of the things that I, I see, you know, because of all my, my work in communication of science and so forth, 
is a lot of really poor communication going on. And I think this is partly, you know, it's not a, a critique necessarily of the individuals involved. It is a critique of the fact that we don't take this seriously in university education and so few people are actually trained to do this properly, which means that the vast majority of the, our medical practitioners, our epidemiologists, the whole lot really don't have a clue about how to communicate effectively to individuals in the public. And we see that even with things like the, the rush on toilet rolls and so forth. And I, I never heard anyone say, actually, the problem here is not with there being no toilet rolls, there's a big problem with the fact that, you know, you have a warehouse that has 100 people in it and they're used to producing enough toilet rolls that 100 people can make and sell. And all of a sudden, you're asking them to produce enough that, you know, would require 10,000 people to make in three days. There is a supply chain problem, not a toilet roll problem. But you don't hear people talking about these things clearly. Like, don't worry. If everyone just didn't buy toilet rolls for a couple of days, there'd be plenty there three days later. You know, it's that that sort of issue around communicating what's really, you know, appropriate to the right people at the right time, and that's that's not happening. Yeah, I mean, that's right. The, those issues about supply chains, um, uh, for manufactured goods and things like toilet mm. paper, it is not a problem in Australia. What the problem is is that people are overreacting and and putting too much pressure on those supply chains. So there's there's no problem with supply of toilet paper, mm. as I understand it. Um, but, yeah, it's trying to get people to modify their behaviours um, so that they're not doing that panic buying. Yeah, and this is a big part for me. Whenever there's calls for closing schools and other elements are really serious social isolation, all we did really was talk about groups of 500 people and see some news from Italy, mm. and all of a sudden our supermarket shelves got absolutely ravaged mm. completely. So if you'd put all of those controls in place on day one, what would that have looked like in the supermarket? You know, that, that's where I think you would have more chaos. And you've got to look at, it's not just the virus that kills people, it's other things that kill people as mm. well. Mm. You know, the flow-on effects, that you know, the, the economic hardships, all these other things kill people as well, and you have to take all of that into account in the response and yeah. do, it, do it in a pragmatic way absolutely and that's what um these mitigation strategies is trying to do is you know everyone's talking about this flattening the curve so that's pulling down the peak and spreading it out over a longer Mm. period of time so health services can deal with other medical crises that might arise during this epidemic and not just coronavirus Um, so it's spreading it out over a longer period of time so that health services can manage it Uh, because this is going to be around for quite a long period of time Um, so those public health mitigation strategies are a great way to do that and we do need to follow that advice um, and all play a role in, in, in doing our part. Mm. And making sure people have the medicines they normally need. Yeah. You know, I saw this last week. My, my son had, a, you know, had uh, an immunotherapy and as a result of that, you know, had some discomfort and so forth, wasn't feeling well. I just needed some kids' Panadol and yeah. I went to the pharmacy and there was none available. And that's great. It's sitting on someone's cupboard shelf doing nothing for the next six months. But the people who need it, and similarly for ventilators inhalers and so forth, who actually might realistically need it, can't get it. That's where you get a spike in deaths mm. because of you know medications that are needed not being available because people are buying it inappropriately. So everyone needs to just take a step back, I think. And look, this is a serious situation, but it's one where we can make it worse. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's a bit of that. Yeah. Mm. Um, just finally, before we go to the break, what, what's your take on how we're faring relative to, you know, you've got Singapore at one end and, and Japan and you've got Italy at the other end. I mean, how are we, and, and the US maybe, I don't know where, it's hard to tell. 
Where are we sitting at the moment? How are we doing? Yeah, so um, globally there's over 300,000 cases now, mm. um, nearly 13,000 deaths, uh, and it's affecting 167 countries. So it is, it's a global crisis. In Australia, um, we've, uh, well, as of yesterday, uh, I'm sure these figures have changed while I was driving into the studio, mm. uh, there was 100, uh, 874 cases in Australia. So what we're seeing in Australia um, is the beginning uh, of, of an exponential curve, but it's probably reflective of the exponential growth in other countries as well. Um, so in terms of how we're faring, you know, we're, we're throwing all the right things at it. Uh, we've implemented uh, these public health mitigation strategies pretty swiftly and uh, really trying to scale up testing uh, yeah. so that we can detect these cases very swiftly, uh, rapidly uh, contain and, and, and isolate those cases. And those quarantining measures uh, for contacts and people who are arriving in from uh, overseas uh, are fair and reasonable and uh, a, a good forms uh, of public health advice to, to try to minimise the transmission uh, and slow the spread. Mm. Thank you, Stacey. Thank you. Good stuff. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gabriel on 3 Triple R, and we have our first guest on the phone, hopefully. Renee Furman from Perth is an ARC Future Fellow from the Centre of Evolutionary Biology in the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Western Australia. Renee, can you hear us? Yep, I can hear you. Excellent. Now, you've been working on how a number of different species are changing the way they interact in order to deal with sort of environmental, I guess, constraints and, and concerns. Talk us through that. What, what sort of things have you been looking at and what, what species in particular? Well, um, so we recently published a paper in um, Current Biology. Um, which is quite a, a broad discipline um, international journal. And what we'd done there is we'd um, done a comparative study on the Australian rodent species, so um, all of the sort of native rodents that live across Australia. Mm -hmm. um, and we'd looked at sort of their evolutionary pathways in relation to the environment that they live in. So we sort of extracted, based on their distribution, so where they live in Australia, we extracted climatic data um, and then we also looked at whether they live socially or non-socially so when I say socially I mean they live in groups um, and kind of quite often they'll cooperate in some way with with their other group members so it might be that they're working together to build a common shelter that they all live in um, and then might even breed together mm. as in cooperatively so yep. You kind of have dominant individuals that breed and then the other group members help to raise those young um, and then non-social, obviously, is the opposite, where uh, individuals just live independently um, and they only sort of come together, um, say, for interactions such as mating um, and things like that. Yeah. Um, and so what we found is that when, uh, uh, when species had sort of evolved in the, under these harsh conditions of low rainfall and variable temperatures... So, so when I say variable temperatures, I mean large fluctuations that you yep. tend to get in desert areas, arid areas. Um, those species live socially. So what that seems to imply is that there's sort of a selection to form social groups and cooperate when, when, when conditions are harsh. Um, 
the opposite of that is, you know, so when um, conditions allow independent living, so there might be high rainfall, temperatures don't fluctuate so much, um, and resources are widely available and not so sort of sparsely um, or sparsely available in both time mm. and, and space, as you see, sort of, if you could imagine a desert, very patchy sort of um, vegetation and things like that. Yeah. So when, when conditions aren't like that, um, individuals are able to live independently. Yep. So, Renee, can you give us, an example, give us an example of what that looks like in terms of when you say they come together and build structures and so forth? I mean, what, what exactly are we talking about here and for what sort of rodents? Okay. Uh, so native um, mice and rats, basically. Yep. Um, so my favourite species um, is the Western Pebble Mound Mouse. So they live in the um, Pilbara region of Western Australia, and that's the only place they occur. And they um, they work with group members to kind of build these pebble mounds above their subterranean burrow system. Hmm. Um, so, what, so what you see in the Pilbara, you'll find kind of, say, within a 300-metre square area, you'll get these sort of um, clusters of pebble mounds that can kind of range from half a metre to a metre in, in diameter. And, the, yeah, the way they have been formed is that these little mice live in groups and they, they move pebbles to put on top of their subterranean burrows. Right, that's great. Um, yeah, and so they, we think that it's not actually sort of known for sure, but we think that those pebble mounds actually sort of um, help to reduce fluctuations in temperatures within the burrows underneath. So you yeah. can see how that sort of cooperative behaviour is directly linked to living in an arid environment. Oh, that's very cool. Renee, it's Stacey speaking. I just had a question about what might happen um, when conditions become more favourable after a period of stress. Do they then revert back to working individually? Uh, yeah, so uh, quite often um, we see sort of what's called plasticity in social behaviour. So say in a, in a species that... And well, we'll live socially under harsh conditions. Um, what you might see is when, say, there's a period of heavy rainfall and a lot more resources around, um, individuals will then actually disband um, or groups will actually disband and individuals will live independently um, and, and because they can, basically. So they're able to sort of, um, you know, forage enough food for themselves and, and all that sort of thing. So... Yeah, so that's that's kind of what you see. Ah, uh, cool. And um, one more thing: Do you think there's any other learnings that we can apply from your research about how human populations might uh, operate in the time of crises? Uh, well, it is interesting actually because um, harsh conditions, so sort of drought conditions, what we tend to see in human um, populations is that it tends to generate conflict more than cooperation. So. I think we can learn a lot um, in relation to how we might better be able to behave as a species when when things are going tough by yes. by looking looking at this 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 degree of cooperation instead of causing conflict. So, Renee, one you're, another. you're saying basically that we should try and behave better than rats. <laughs> yeah, <basically. laughs> <I think>. yeah. <laughs> that's the take yeah. home, right? Um, can yeah. I, can I ask with regards to the um, you know, the climate changing so forth. 
how how much do we need to sort of map this with other species to see which species will be most adaptive it sounds like this is a pretty good adaptive strategy of you know they can come together and help each other but um mm. i assume we don't know much about this for other species you know larger species uh we know well yeah so I mean, I guess there's a few, a few sort of things to, to think about when we talk about other types of animals that might um, exhibit this behaviour. I mean, cooperative behaviour is um, very commonly observed in birds, so we know a lot of birds do it and things like that. Mm. Um, but when you start talking about sort of larger animals, obviously it becomes hard to sort of maybe congregate um, so much when conditions are harsh. Yep. Um, but, but there's also other reasons that... Um, uh, species and different types of animals might form groups because um, we do see in large mammals, um, you know, sort of pre uh, uh, species that are predated on form groups, you know, as a means of protection from predators. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it's not it's not always about sort of cooperation in the sense of acquiring resources. Yeah. Um, yeah, as, look, the climate, as the climate changes, I mean, we, we might see that this, this sort of cooperative behaviour does emerge more. Yeah. Um, yeah, Look, it's very, it's very interesting stuff, Renee, and uh, it's great talking to you. And thanks so much for taking our call over there in Perth. I think uh, uh, it'd be very interesting to see how this pans out and how some of these species do adapt as things change. And obviously, things are going to get a lot harsher before they get better. Um, yeah. Thanks so much for the chat. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Renee Furman is an ARC Future Fellow from the School of Biological Sciences in the University of Western Australia. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. We have our next guest on the line. Her name is Atlanta Colley. She's a comedian. We figured we might need to cheer people up today a little bit. Atlanta, can you hear us? I can hear you. Now, unfortunately, the show coming up uh, that you were going to be doing as part of the festival has been... Is it postponed or cancelled? It's been cancelled. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we'll just see what happens in the next six to 12 months. Now, you've done quite a few shows over the years. Tell us a little bit about some of the ones you've done in the past before we get into your, your current one. Yeah, um, my first solo show was Parasites Lost. It was the story about my years uh, sort of travelling to Southeast Asia and uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, working in health education, um, educating communities how to prevent diseases. And it was about the parasites I contracted in the process. Oh, that sounds like fun. Yeah, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. And it kind of, um, yeah, the, the show that followed on from that was my beekeeping uh, and bee losing show, uh, Days of Our Hives. Right, <laughs> you got some great names in there. I love it. Now, your your current show, which would have been on very soon, had uh, we gone to area in a slightly different parallel universe, um, was is all about uh, excrement, I believe. It is. It's called on the origin of feces, yep. and it was looking looking into the marvel of our gut microbiomes uh, and the way that our gut microbiomes talk to our brain and the magnificent power of poo. <laughs> and I mean. So you're, but you're, you've got a background in science, so presumably these are as much educational as they are comedic, yeah? They are. So, yeah, I trained in uh, international public health. Um, so that's my, my main area. And I really like combining science and comedy. I sort of think there's a lot to be gained in um, finding new ways to make science funny. And uh, I, I like bringing things into a comedy space that haven't traditionally been in there as well. Yeah. Now, as a as a middle aged man, I feel as though I know a lot about poo because I was brought up in Australia when you know we, that's all we talked about in school when I was there. Um, but can you teach me a few things? Uh, what can I teach you? I think the the really interesting thing at the moment is all about fecal transplants. 
Oh, um, yeah. We sort of, uh, there's some really fascinating research demonstrating uh, everything from uh, clinical depression. They've identified two specific strains of bacteria that are missing in the gut microbiomes of uh, people with clinical depression. So we're looking at fecal transplants for the treatment of, of depression, um, potentially uh, obesity, uh, and there's been some studies demonstrating that it can even support um, autism behaviours to improve over time as well. Mm. So what's the deal with fecal transplants? I mean, it doesn't sound great. They don't sound great, but uh, basically it's through the sort of lives that we've lived. Um, we've had a reduced diversity of our gut microbiomes, and a fecal transplant can actually reintroduce strains of bacteria back into your gut microbiome, which is your large intestine, and actually help settle the, um, the score between the good and the bad bacteria and actually breed up some of those positive bacterias it can actually help us uh, with our health in various ways. So should I be trying to sell my poo on eBay or is this something that only the very experienced uh, researchers who can package this up in little pills can do? <laughs> Some people are. There's a, there's a famous website called The Power of Poo where people are switching their, their uh, fecal transplants with complete strangers. Yep. But uh, when, you're, when you get a fecal... And some people are DIYing when they've identified a donor. But it's much better to have a fecal transplant um, that's been screened by a clinic for antimicrobial-resistant bacteria, such as specific strains of E. coli. There has been a couple of deaths where people have received a fecal transplant from someone who didn't have a screening test and they've actually received um, uh, antibiotic-resistant strains bacteria because when you get a fecal transplant, you're transmitting so many different strains of bacteria that you are... It's a real... Yeah. Yeah, I think if you're going to push something out like that as a program, you've got to be really careful how you how you do it. I was just yeah. wondering, was there a potential for like an uh, a connecting app for like you know like a Tinder version of fecal transplant, so you could you know select the type of bacteria you're looking for or anything like that? Or... <laughs> swiping right and swiping yeah. left just as a whole new meaning. Yeah. Well, up and down. I think it would be up and down in that app. I, I probably yeah. Uh, <laughs> Front to back. Front to back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, this is not good. Uh, no, especially when the scientists are making the jokes. It's not that good. Well, uh, Alanda, what else can you teach us about <laughs> the origin of feces? I love that title, by the way. It's a classic. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think I'm basing a lot of the book on some of the sort of research presented by Julia Enders in the book Gut, which is a few years old now. But it's, um, it's sort of demonstrating a lot of the the fact that allergies throughout our population uh, are the result of uh, basically the reduced gut microbiome, uh, reduced uh, bacteria in our poo. So we're, we're hoping uh, that it's, it's a very difficult time to be talking about how great uh, bacteria is with the current mm. um, outbreak. <laughs> uh, bacteria and viruses are not very popular right at the minute. Um, but the increasing sterilization looks like what it's actually done um, is that our immune systems are very much um, designed to be constantly battling the um, introduction of pathogens. And when we reduce the number of pathogens that they're battling, uh, they can end up uh, turning to hyperimmune responses, which is attacking their own benign cells. So uh, we actually, uh, there's an amazing exhibition on at um, Melbourne Museum called Gut Feelings, which is basically looking at the fact that we're Melbourne is as the um, sort of allergy capital of the world. We've got very high rates of allergies and the incredible sort of sterility 
uh, seems to have contributed to that. Mm, interesting. Now, I think uh, no doubt in your you know your future comedic adventures, you'll be including a lot more on toilet rolls. Is that is that going to play? I mean, that's going to have to play a part, right? <laughs> it was uh, in the weeks before everything got shut down. I was I was talking to all my um, potential audience about how pliable and absorbent my tickets were, and that they should snap them up. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it has I, a whole I, new I, strategy to print at home. Yeah, well, look, uh, I, I certainly hope that you, you can get back into uh, making people laugh very soon. And, and, you know, that may have to be uh, via via Skype or Zoom. But um, good luck with that. And sorry to hear everything got uh, cancelled, hopefully postponed. Hopefully things will, um, you know, be done later in the year or something. And many of these programs will get back up and running. But uh, keep up the good work, Atlanta, and lovely chatting to you. Thanks so much, Shane. Thanks so much. Triple R. You're listening to Einstein the Go-Go on 3 R. Believe it or not, we have another guest on the phone. This is what we do these days. It's cool. Um, I don't have, make, don't have to make any coffees. We're saving heaps on water. It's, it's fantastic. On the phone now, we have Associate Professor Carly Bugese from the RMIT University. She's in the School of Design, a principal research fellow there. Carly, can you hear me? I can, Jane. How are you? Good. Now, um, the sound quality is not fantastic, but we'll do our best here. You have been working on what's going down, at, going on down at Casey's Station in the Antarctic Division um, as we part of our been. ongoing work there. And I, I, I said, uh, what did I say before when I introduced you? Contamination. It's not contamina- contamination, is it? You're, let's, let's get into what you're actually assessing, which is the environmental impact of um, our Antarctic infrastructure down there. So... Can you give us a bit of a rundown of what sort of impact the station has overall? What sort of things are we, you know, popping out into the environment? Yeah, so we've just finished a six-year study uh, funded by the Australian Antarctic Science Grant. Uh, the project ran from 2013 through to 2018, mm-hmm. um, and uh, research from that has just recently been published. But basically what we did was we looked at what does it take to actually operate the station, uh, which is obviously uh, very remote and isolated, uh, and supplies come in once a year, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we basically looked at um, energy, uh, the water, the food, um, etc., um, everything that needs to happen to, to operate the station. And then you assign those things through to environmental impacts to get a bit of an idea of where where are the hotspots um, and where can the uh, department look at um, improving uh, maybe efficiencies, et cetera. Okay. And give us an idea of the size of the station. How many people are there permanently? And I suppose how many people sort of come and go depending on the season? Yeah, so you can only get to Antarctica um, basically through summer season. So around uh, November through to March are when um, expeditioners um, and researchers fly in and out of the station. So over that summer period, uh, Casey, which is Australia's largest station um, on Antarctica, is uh, around 120 people on station. And then that reduces, which is pretty much around this time now, they're reducing down to a skeleton staff of about 18 to 20 people who will winter together uh, for the next six months until they see new faces um, again in November. Have, have you been down there yourself, Carly? Yeah, actually, I had the, yeah, had the real privilege of going there uh, for three weeks back in uh, February of 2015. So we've just, uh, yeah, five years ago. Yeah. Uh, and, an amazing experience. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and in terms of the, you know, what are the, you may not know because you haven't been down there at this particular time of year, but what is it like for those 18 or so people when you first encounter them after that long winter break where they have had no other interaction other than their own small group? 
from what I understand, yeah, they're, they're definitely looking for for new faces. Yeah, um, a bit. And um, and then obviously it's I would say it'd be a huge adjustment. We came in in February, so you know there'd been a few months of people on station, but I could imagine you you having to readjust with extra people in space. Mm. Um, it's kind of, if you think about it, it's kind of like being on a school camp um, or um, for, for basically a long period of time. Um, the station's a, a workplace, but it's also a home environment as well for those who are on station. Yeah. I mean, it'd be great to set up some, some good uh, video links with some of these people at the moment so they can tell the rest of us how to deal with all this social isolation. It seems like they'd be quite quite well versed in this. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Uh, yeah, no, they have definitely, um, you know, channels through the uh, the Australian Antarctic um, uh, Department's website. So, and they have, they do posts every week, actually, little videos and um, narratives of what's happening mm. on station. So, yeah, I encourage people to check that out. Yeah, that'd be cool. Now, let's talk about some of these um, areas you've been looking at. Can we focus on one, say, energy, for example? In terms of energy, what what does the station have as its supply, and and how problematic or otherwise is that? So basically, uh, fuel is, is transported in uh, via the Aurora Australis um, uh-huh. uh, once a year. So for Casey, they resupply uh, generally um, around Christmas time, so in December. Um, and so they'll spend many days, you know, pumping um, the fuel off um, the, the ship and onto storage tanks that are on station. And then that fuel is then used to, uh, to generate electricity um, and power through the station. Right. So this is like diesel or something, I, I assume? Yes, yeah. it's called a uh, special Antarctic blend, actually. Okay, and and with the outputs of the use of that diesel, diesel, what what happens with those? Because you know there's contaminants as a result of using diesel as a fuel. So obviously there's um, emissions that come out, um, and that you know, air emissions, for instance, um, but they're monitored and and checked accordingly. Hmm. So I was, this is Ray, I was curious, what was, when you said you were looking at hotspots for environmental impact, was there any hotspot or environmental impact that surprised you or was unexpected uh, out of, I mean, the obvious ones of, well, you have emissions from diesel and I imagine you have water effluent and waste treatment, but was there anything surprising? Really, in particular, I guess um, yeah. Generally, I guess fuel fuel is obviously um, a, a major part of of our lives. Um, I guess one of the things was interesting just to see what goes around the logistics around um, uh, the planning um, and procurement of food. Um, again, food's coming in once a year, so the chefs that are on station need to be really, uh, really you know, know who's on station um, and serving sizes, etc., uh, and to be able to give then also uh, variety um, to those who are on station. So uh, I don't think it's Casey. I think it's McMurdo. They've they've rolled out a, um, a toilet-to-tap water recycling system, or they're they're testing one out there now. Do does from your from your look at the environmental impact at Casey Station is is water runoff an area or, or wastewater an area where where there's clearly some work that they could do or that type of, of of water recycling from toilet to tap would be a positive impact or did it not show up as much in Casey? Yeah, look, I mean, all options, are, I guess, are on the table. It, it, it comes down to sort of what what is the current infrastructure that's down on station uh, and, and what is sort of the future planning, et cetera. You then also need to obviously bring people on board to be able to, you know, um, to accommodate that. You know, are people willing to, to drink uh, water that, in a, in a sense, has been recycled? So I think that, yeah, they explore things all the time um, and that's, again, um, a potential opportunity, but nothing that I understand is um, is planned at the moment. 
Carly, it's Stacey here. Um, I can imagine that the research going on down at Casey is uh, usually starting starting at a very good base, that their, their environmental impacts, they're probably considering that at the outset. But what were some of your recommendations um, that you found that where they could try, try to improve or minimise minimize some of these environmental impacts? Yeah, I think... I think it's like any organisation. Obviously, uh, AAD is a, is a government department, but having good data is always the first part. You know, you can't manage something if you if you don't measure it um, or don't have um, proper things in place. So that's one of the really critical things um, is having it's having good data to then be able to then take that into decision making. Uh, and what this project demonstrated was um, that that can that can be enhanced as well. Um, and then also that communication across station um, and through to to new people or expeditioners coming in and out. Um, there is a, a turnover of people coming back um, to to, um, to work on station, but then you've got new people as well. So how do you then manage uh, those, uh, I guess, different behaviours um, and understanding from people as well is also an area of uh, communication and education. Mm. Carly, it sounds like uh, you should take another trip down there and give a couple of presentations on the, you know, the results of your work. Well, look, I mean, we, we actually did a little study when we were down there. We actually did a little survey um, of people just to, to get a bit of a, an idea of, of different behaviours and practices. Um, it was actually a really good experience uh, to be able to speak with uh, those on, on operations, but all of us, also the scientists, and, and talk about these broader impacts associated with, I guess, our daily lives. Yeah. Um, what it takes to, to, you know, turn a switch on or, or turn a tap on or, or to feed ourselves. Yeah, now it's good to see it from such a confined scenario where everything is so visible because it's such a small group of people in such a small area that you're dealing with did did they do anything weird to you when you went down did they make you watch like uh, the thing by john carpenter or anything like that on the trip <laughs> no they didn't <laughs> no they didn't but the sun was pretty much up for 24 yeah. hours a day so that was an interesting experience to be part of yeah it's kind of a shame isn't it like part of me says you know i know it's appalling conditions in winter but you know the being able to see that winter sky uh, the dark night sky in, um, in in such a remote location where there's no no light pollution would be amazing. And unfortunately, most people are down there when it's just, you know, sunny all day. Yeah, but you do really, even just for those three weeks, you really do get us, you really do start to disconnect because I, I found when I came back, particularly walking through the city, just, just the noise and people, it was just so so amplified um, than being down there in, in basically silence when you're out there. I mean, you can hear the wind, but, you know, there's no trees blowing, you know, um, and, and you can hear sounds of the animals, etc. you know, penguins, for instance, but it's a really different sensation. Yeah, give it a couple of weeks, it'll probably like that in the CBD of Melbourne. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Carly, thanks so much for talking to us. It's great that uh, everyone in the Antarctic Division is so, so on to this. I think it's really, you know, not only do we learn a lot about what's going on down there, but as you say, we also learn about what we need to be doing better um, back here as well. So um, I hope you get to go down there again soon, but uh, even if you don't, keep up the good work. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Shane. Thanks, Carly. It's uh, Associate Professor Carlio Vergis, a Principal Research Fellow in the School of Design at RMIT University. Uh, you are 
Aaron Triple R. We've got a couple of minutes left. I wanted to mention some other science that I saw because I wasn't sure if we had time at the start of the show. We wanted to focus on um, some virus thing that's apparently in the news. Uh, but there's some other science going on in the world. And one of the things that I thought was really cool was this 18-year sort of study by the European Space Agency's cluster mission. So this is um, one of these scenarios where people have been examining what's going on in what they refer to as geospace. So geospace is the space that's really close to the Earth. It's not, you know, not outer space, as you might call it, but it's really close to the Earth. And there's a lot of effects of our magnetic field. A lot of, you know, basically you see a lot of stuff coming from the sun. But it's relatively close to us. And it's interesting to us because um, what happens on Earth can affect it. So, you know, meteorites... um, you know, breaking up in the atmosphere and so forth can affect it because they leave material in this area and so forth and material builds up there. But the the part that I found interesting about this was um, one of the things that you see a lot of in this space is a lot of charged particles. You get a lot of charged electrons and a lot of other charged um, positively charged particles, so electrons being negatively charged, you get a lot of positively charged ions of different materials. And there was a group basically who were looking at... Um, you know, what distribution of some of these materials were. And in particular, they were looking at iron. So how much iron is in in this region? Now, we often think of space as, you know, empty, but, and it's fairly empty actually, but there is a non-zero amount of material out there that you can detect quite readily. And there's actually quite a lot of it. So it's not like you would, you know, be walking through it and see it hitting your face, but there's a lot of material out there that we're interested in because it has an effect on many things. Anyway, the thing that's really cool about this study is that it took data from this particular mission over an 18-year period. But the data wasn't from the sort of primary examination of things by the mission. So the mission was measuring various things all the time. The data was taken from the calibrations that were done before those measurements were done for everyone else. So they'd take the instrument and they'd run a calibration series to make sure it was doing everything right. And then, Stacey, you'd get your turn measuring oxygen and Ray would get his turn measuring hydrogen but meanwhile when I did the calibration I had to check about five or six different things and one of them was iron and that's how I calibrated the instrument and this particular study has used that calibration data over 18 years to determine how much iron is in this geosphere region which I think is really cool because it's kind of like it's the you know the the sensing the noise if you will the, the information noise but what they've shown is that the actual amount of iron that they're seeing in this region is substantially higher than they thought and they've also managed to determine where it's mainly from so there's some ideas that it was coming from the moon some ideas it's mainly from meteorites but actually this iron they're detecting is pretty much all from the sun so it kind of narrows down what this environment's like and as much as we know so much about other environments in our solar system and space and so forth we actually still know relatively little about what's going on pretty close to the earth which i find is fascinating because you know that's that's how we get affected so much and if we don't know what those materials are and what's around it's um you know mm. up in the air so but uh, I, li- I like this study because it was kind of a, a side study you know it was like how do i use the calibration data that everyone else has thrown away for 18 years troll through that and come out with some really interesting science around what the materials are that we're seeing around the earth so and and the increase in iron was unexpected yeah well they just found a bit more than they were expecting Mm. and but they were also able to determine where it was from Mm. and you know that's a question that's sort of been a bit open like what's the source of it we know it's there Um, we know these materials are there but you know most of it looks like it's coming from from the sun so it sort of nails down the source of some of these materials which is important in knowing what you know what um, what different objects are doing. So the moon's, you know, not at fault. 
Sorry, Moon. Not you. Anyway, we are still going to be broadcasting again next week. So if you'd like to hear some more science, come back in exactly seven days. Mine is one hour, and we will chat more science to you. Thank you, Dr. Ray. Dr. Shane. Stacey, good to see you. Nice to see you too. Good luck with your work on Corona. Thank you. Keep us all safe. <laughs> if, if we're not safe, we're blaming you. Um, folks, uh, try and be nice to your fellow people out there and don't steal their toilet rolls. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, even in the supermarkets. Ah, that's right. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.